0: Hello, it's Technology Corner for the week of October 22nd, 2006. I'm Bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And first up this morning, Firefox. Firefox 2 just about ready for final release. When I started writing this article, they were at release candidate 1. Uh, Not too long after that, Release Candidate 2 came out, and I had to make some changes to what I'd already written, and then Release Candidate 3 came out last week. Not much changed, but I still needed to go back and make a few modifications to what I'd written, so Release Candidate 3 is the current version, unless they've put out a new one overnight. Maybe it'd be good to talk about how software is developed. Software is typically developed in cycles. You design the product, decide what you want it to do, what features you'd like it to have, and you hand it off to the developers who write the code, and there's some testing, hopefully enough testing to get rid of most of the bugs, and then the product is released. And then you start all over again. You look back at what you did. You consider feedback from users and you develop new design specs, and you go back through the design, develop, test, and release again. So it's a never-ending procedure. Actually, the develop and test process within the development part of the program uh, is uh, iterative in its own right, particularly with large projects. You'll generally have a nightly build. They compile any new code that's been written during the day, compile that at night so people can look at it the following day and see if it's going along in the direction that it's supposed to be going. So there's all this internal testing going along with uh, what is called alpha code. Alpha code is is something that programmers consider not to be good enough to be released to the general public. There are usually large holes in alpha code. Yeah, You'll have little pieces of a program that will work, but large areas that will not. And at this point, all they're doing is essentially proof of performance kinds of tests to make sure that what they have written will do what it's supposed to do. So this is still buggy. Not all the features are there. And there actually may be in alpha code frequently some features that may not be released in the final code. And alpha code is always going to be very slow, not optimized. The next step up from alpha code is beta code. And betas are often released outside the company. They're usually somewhat secretive and released only to people who need to have them because again they will have a significant number of bugs in them. And most will go through two or more beta releases. Not all the features are going to be there. And, again, there still may be some features in betas that won't show up in the final code. And they're going to be slow. Code has not yet been optimized. By the time developers get to the release candidates, they generally have the feature set pretty much established. You're not going to see anything added once they get to release code. On rare occasions, you might see something removed by the time they actually release the application. But in general, when you're looking at release code software, you're looking at code that is not optimized, probably has not yet been localized, meaning that it will be available only in the primary language of the developers. In most cases, that's going to be English. uh has not been, yet been localized for other languages around the world. The release candidate code is often released to the general public, which is the case with Firefox here. And the goal is for lots of users to examine the software and hopefully to find some of the small, obscure bugs. And not all of these end up being fixed. Some of them are just simply identified for attention in the next release. When an application is released, usually it comes with some release notes. The release notes will tell you what was fixed, what's new, and perhaps just as important, bugs that they are aware of, but that have not been fixed. The release code is, depending on the company involved, called gold code, or it might be shown as RTM, which means Release to Manufacturing. Although with so many things being downloaded these days, you don't exactly release them to manufacturing. So currently, Firefox is at release candidate 3. Probably pretty stable, probably almost identical to what will be released. If you decide to install it, there are a couple of things to be aware of. Let's take a quick look at the installation process. You install over the existing Firefox 1 That will allow you to keep all of your settings. You'll be given a choice of a standard installation or a custom installation. Most people will want to choose standard. The only difference in choosing custom is that it offers the ability to install the document object model inspector, which I find useful. And it also offers the quality feedback agent, which, when the program crashes, will send information back to Mozilla about what happened. I installed both of those. Now, both of those may be installed by default in the standard version. I'm not sure. I do know that once you install them in the custom version, they will always be installed with future versions, and you do not have the option to remove them. The warning I have for you is if you're a heavy Firefox user and you've added a lot of extensions, first of all, they're not extensions anymore. With version 2, they are now called add-ons. I guess extensions was too big a word. Many of your extensions add-ons will not work with version 2. I have 15 add-ons that I typically like to use. Five of those were disabled after I upgraded to version 2. In most cases, an add-on designed for version 1 will work with version 2. The only thing that keeps it from working is some internal code that shows the highest release level that that particular add-on is certified to work with. So if I have one that is certified for 1.1 and I install 2.0 software, the part of the application that manages the add-ons will determine that an add-on will not work, even though it might. There is a tool designed for software developers called the Nightly Tester Tools, and it will allow you to make all of your add-ons compatible. You push one button, and every add-on that's on the machine will be converted to appear to work properly, under version 2, I set appear to work properly under version 2. All it does is go into the add-on and change that high version number. So you have two possible results. Either the add-on will work, that's what happens in most cases, or the add-on will fail. If that happens, you're no worse off than if you hadn't used the nightly tester tool If you're interested in installing version 2, I would recommend obtaining the nightly tester tool. There's a link to that on the website, www.techbiter.com. All of mine worked, by the way. What's new in version 2? Well, Firefox has added a very powerful anti-phishing tool. They have a test page you can go to that actually will cause the anti-phishing warning to show up. It works by using a shared database of known bad sites. These are updated fairly frequently. And there are also some other tools built in that will allow you to get more up-to-date information, even more up-to-date than that. And the anti-phishing database is updated regularly, several times a day. In Firefox version 2, links now open by default in a new tab, not in a new window. I think that's the right way to do it. That's the way I had set my version of Firefox previously, but that's now the default. Also, there is a feature called Session Restore in the event of a crash, in the event of a system restart. You install a new Windows update, and Windows requires that you restart the machine. It will close all of your applications. It closes Firefox in a way that Firefox knows you didn't close it, so when it restarts, it will go through this System Restore function. And if Firefox has to restart itself, you add a new add-on, you add any new feature to the application, and it needs to restart. When it restarts, you'll go through the session restore. What session restore is, if you had 15 tabs open and Firefox is closed through one of those three methods that is not considered standard user decision to close the program, then when you open the application again, it will say, last time you had 15 tabs open, would you like me to reopen all 15 of them? I think that's a pretty neat feature. There is more robust updating in version 2. It checks each time you start up, and this actually ends up slowing down a a uh, startup sometimes, but it's probably a better solution. Each time you start, it checks to see if there are any updates to add-ons. If there are, it includes them, and then automatically does the Firefox restart. So you're in the process of starting Firefox. It doesn't fully start. It gets to the point where it is able to detect a new add-on. It puts the add-on in and then hits its own restart button. Pretty clever, really. Each tab has its own close button right on the tab. That's much clearer than in the previous method. Uh, In the past, the close button for any given tab was in the upper right-hand corner up close to the close button for the entire program. And no small number of people hit the wrong one. They'd close the entire program, meaning to close just one tab. Well, now the close button is on the tab marker itself. And as of release candidate 3, there is only one visible at any one time. The earlier release candidates, each tab had a close button on it. Now only the one that is active has the close button. Another good idea. Overall, customization is better in Firefox version 2. Customization allows you to make the program work the way you want it to work. One of the new features in customization is one I'm not so sure is really a good idea, though. It includes the ability for Firefox to maintain its own list of applications. Uh, That means that when you click on a link in Firefox depending on which type of uh, file it is, you are able to tell it what program you want to have open the file. Now, Windows and the Mac, at least, and possibly Unix, I'm not sure, maintain their own system-level lists of default applications. I'm not quite sure why you'd want a second level of default programs, but Firefox makes it available if you want to do that. One problem I found in... Release Candidate 3, there is a serious memory leak. A memory leak causes a particular application to take more and more memory the longer it's running. At one point, I got an annoyed message from Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver said, your system is running low on memory. Well, I have a computer with 2 gigabytes of RAM, and that seemed a little odd but I checked to see what was using memory. It turned out that Firefox, which typically should be using about 100 megabytes of memory, was actually using well over 500 megabytes of memory. Yes, half a gig of memory for Firefox. Once I closed it and reopened it, we dropped back down around 100 megabytes. That's still an awful lot of memory for a program to use, and that may be addressed by the time the final version is released. So for Firefox, four cats, not quite five, probably not five even if they fix the memory leak thing, but there are enough features there to make it well worthwhile to download it. The more robust updating and the anti-phishing tools are well worth the price of admission, which by the way is still zero. I'm one of those people who has a generally good impression of Google. Google is a company that has managed to do a lot of things well. It's not always been perfect, as its relations with China, for example, would indicate. Certainly, the search engine is the best there is out there at the moment. Google Earth is a fascinating application. And Google Mail is something that I have said, well, it's still webmail, but it's the best webmail available. Recently, I heard about a problem. A person told me that she routinely was receiving mail sent to someone who had the same name as she did. Let's use John Doe's name. Let's say John Doe has an address, john Doe at gmail.com, j-o-h-n-d-o-e at gmail.com. John Doe can use that address, or he can use j-o-h-n dot d-o-e at gmail.com. He can use j.o.h.n.d.o.e at gmail.com. Periods are ignored. That's an idea that probably would get a grade of F in a freshman-level programming class. Even if the idea was a good one, a valid one, Google seems to have implemented it badly. Now I understand that Google Mail is still officially in beta. Uh, Google tends to do that. They put something out in beta, they leave it in beta for an absurdly long time. Perhaps then when there's a problem with it, they can say, well, it's still beta software after all. In any event, despite Google's claim that only one variant of a name like John Doe, J-O-H-N-D-O-E, or J-O-H-N.D-O-E, can be subscribed, apparently there is a bug that allows two users to subscribe with what Google would consider to be the same name. So J-O-H-N dot D-O-E and J-O-H-N-D-O-E without the dot could both subscribe. One of them would receive all the mail for both accounts. That's not a good thing. In nerdly news, on Friday morning I was just sitting around minding my own business when in the space of about 30 minutes I received more than 200 bounce messages. 30 minutes, 200 bounce messages. Let's do the math on that. If that would continue over a 24-hour period... That would be 14,400 bounce messages. That's more than I want to get. First, you might want to know why this was happening. Well, it seems that one of my addresses had been picked up and was being used by a spammer. Now, this doesn't mean that the spammer was sending mail through my account. That's hardly ever the case. Most of the time, if you start getting bounce messages for spams, what has happened is that your address has somehow fallen into a spammer's hands. That's not very difficult to have happen. Falls into the spammer's hands, and they start using your address as the from address and the reply to address in their garbage emails. So when there are bounce messages, you get them. Well, that's what was happening to me. And actually, the case I had was not as bad as some that I've seen. A friend of mine, several years ago, was receiving thousands of bounces per hour. Thousands of bounces per hour for days. In this case, I was lucky. The address that the spammer had chosen was one that I never did use very much and currently was using not at all. It wasn't even a standard POP3 account. It was just one that was forwarded to one of my POP3 mailboxes. The simple, quick, easy solution, kill the address. No more messages get forwarded. No more problem easy. But what if you have just one address and a spammer starts using that? Would that be painful to you? It probably would. How would you get around it? You'd have to change your address. You'd have to let everybody know, all of your friends, everyone you'd ever given your address to. What a pain. There are known ways to eliminate spam. All that's needed is for organizations such as Microsoft, AOL, and others to get off their collective behinds and decide that they should work for the common good instead of trying to find some commercial advantage. And that's probably just about as likely as bipartisan cooperation at the federal level. So maybe the right thing to hope for is some assistance from the government. Not the police department, not the county sheriff, not the state. Most spam still comes from the U.S. Maybe the U.S. federal government could help. Maybe that's the best possible solution today. What's going to be needed long-term is some sort of multinational anti-spam force, a united nations of spam fighters. We don't really need any new laws. Right now, today, we have laws against fraud, and it appears to me that at least 90% of spam is fraudulent. This week, for example, I've killed at least 500 messages that deal with a pump-and-dump stock scheme. They come with headlines such as, Significant message you should to read or significant message you need to read or grand message you require to read or momentous message you should to read and on and on and on. And the messages are most likely from criminals. The mafia has been shown to be involved in this stuff. Criminals buy stock in small companies through over-the-counter exchanges. They then use a variety of means to promote the stock. Spam is one of the ways that they promote or pump it Unwitting investors buy the stock, the price goes up, and the fraudsters immediately sell their shares and stop spamming. The price drops back down, the fools who bought high are left to sell low, if they're able to sell at all, the stock that is returned to its true, small, well under a penny in some cases, value. I use the word fools. I think that's a valid description for anybody who would purchase stocks based on the recommendation of a spammer. Here's an update for you. Last week I talked about the Zillabar. I said that it didn't work. Well, I was right, uh, but not entirely. After several weeks of trying to get in touch with Jess Kalich at IS-3, we finally made contact this past week. I had said the Zillabar was broken, wondered at the time if I misunderstood what it was supposed to be doing, or perhaps if it did not support Internet Explorer 7. Internet Explorer 7 is what I've been running in beta for the past few months. Indeed, it turns out that the Zilla bar does not work with Internet Explorer 7, but it will by the end of November. At that time, I'll revisit the program. I'll let you know how well it works out. That's the answer I was hoping for. Oh, and by the way, Internet Explorer 7 is out. It's no longer in beta. It's out in the final form. If you have Windows XP or Windows Server 2003, Windows Update will eventually install the latest browser version on your computer. If you're still running Windows 2000 or something earlier than that, Windows 98, 95, Windows ME, for example, Microsoft wants you to know that you are now officially orphaned. IE 7 is certified only for Windows XP Service Pack 2, Windows XP Professional X64 Edition, and Windows Server 2003 with Service Pack 1. There will be no Mac version, because IE development for the Mac ended with version 5.2. When you do the installation, you may think that your computer is broken. It takes a very long time. You'll probably reboot at least once, possibly twice, maybe in some cases three times. I've seen each of those occur on a different machine. You may think your computer is broken because you no longer have any idea how long the process will take. Microsoft, of course, was the butt of a lot of jokes because of their guess of how long something would take. At the beginning of a process, it may tell you that it's going to take 27 minutes. And then 30 seconds later, it tells you it's going to take 5 minutes. People understandably wondered what happened to that extra time. Also in the past, the progress bar typically showed you how much of the installation was complete. If the progress bar showed about 10% and it had been running for 10 minutes, you knew, for example, that you could go out to lunch, come back, and it would probably just about be finishing up, if you took a long enough lunch. Well, the progress bar has been replaced by what could only be called a whirly gig. It does absolutely nothing. Five little green dots just move across the page, and go back and move across the page, and go back and move across the page. You have no idea how long it's going to take. You have no idea whether you're 10% done, 50% done, or 90% done. This is dumb as for the rest of what's new in internet explorer 7 well i've been looking at the betas for a while but rather than talk about what was in the betas and what might possibly be in the actual release code we'll wait a couple of weeks and take a look for real at what's in ie7 and that's it thanks for listening this has been technology corner for the week of october 22nd 2006 i'm bill blinn check out the website com. You can also send email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.